This is the We Spin Recipes podcast with Andrew Apanov. Hello everyone, Andrew Apanov here. It's Friday and you're listening to the new We Spin Recipes podcast. Today's episode features a very special guest, a record producer from the UK, Stuart Apps. If you're not familiar with the name, he's worked with uh, a myriad of legendary artists of the last few decades, including Elton John, Robbie Williams, George Harrison, Led Zeppelin, Jeff Beck, Paul Rogers, Twisted Sister, and much, much more. Uh, this year, Stewart started offering production, recording, mixing, and mastering services to independent musicians, which means anyone, including you, the listener, get a chance to work with such a legend remotely or in his studio. Uh, You know how I normally go on talking about stuff in the intros, uh, but this episode is almost one hour long and full of great stories and insights from Stuart, so let me make an exception of sorts and keep the talking to the minimum this time. Uh, So here we go, enjoy the interview with Stuart Apps. Hello Stuart, Uh, it's really great to have you as a guest of the show, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, it's really a pleasure and honor to talk to you. And um, I'm pretty confident that a number of uh, our listeners are familiar with your name. And um, I'm linking to your websites and so places where our listeners and readers can find out more on you in the show notes. But I just have to ask you to introduce yourself and provide a little bit of background and I'm just extremely curious to hear it from you. I mean, it is a long story because I'm extremely old now, so it's uh, it starts a long, long time ago. It's a bit like a fairy story, really. But anyway, I started way back in 1967 um, working for the Beatles music publisher, whose name was Dick James. And I did that straight from school. I was always into music. I was in bands when I was eight, nine years old. I started very young in music. But a friend of mine had already been working there. I was planning on staying at school a long time, but I thought um, it was getting very boring. And anyway, he he said there was a job going at this place. So I went up for an interview. I got the job. I became the office boy at uh, Dick James Music in New Oxford Street in London in 1967. I was on £6 a week, which, which I suppose is about $15, but it was a lot more than I was getting uh, at home with my parents. Anyway, it was very exciting times for me to now be working within the music business, although I was still just the office boy. Dick James Music, as I say, was the Beatles music publisher. It was a very, very big, probably one of the biggest music publishers in London at the time. And uh, I was really seeing the the record business and the music business from the uh, very beginnings. There was some exciting times because um, when I joined uh, Dick James, the Beatles' White Album was released, and we used to get that copy before it was released. And uh, I'd get to go to, I used to have to go to Paul McCartney's house and to all these amazing studios uh, where the Rolling Stones were recording. So, you know, even though it was a lowly job, it was an amazing experience just being in that place. But anyway, uh, time progressed, and uh, then I became the disc cutting engineer. I then became the assistant engineer in the studio. I should add that at this time, I also met a young singer-songwriter who was signed to the music publishers called Reg Dwight, who was a very uh, flamboyant character, but a great musician. Uh, he sat down and played me some of his music, and I just was uh, completely taken with his uh, voice and with his songs. And uh, he changed his name. His name was Elton John. Uh, 
There was also a band there called Hookfoot, um, who had the most amazing guitarist called Caleb Quay, who just sounded like Jimi Hendrix, really. So there were some great musicians and great artists around. I became the studio engineer by the time I was about 17. But, you know, I really wanted to get more into... Uh, when I heard Elton John's music, I just thought, well, I, I'd love to get involved in his career and in promoting him because we really thought that he should go places. So by the age of 18, I, I did a bit of plugging, but that, then I became uh, assistant to the head of um, what was now the record company and started working on a daily basis to promote Elton, really, from um, his first record releases to doing shop displays and everything to do with his career, really. I organized the GJM Records um, launch and uh, you know was getting involved in gigs and actually aged 18 everything happened very fast in those days I went with Elton on tour in America on his only second American tour and I'd never even been to uh, to the States but now I was aged 18 going on a three-month tour with Elton John and actually if you go on my website you can see some of the photos from that tour and well it was it was brilliant really because you know the band that was with him were all my friends and uh we were having a great time, but apart from that, he was becoming uh, very well known now in, in America. So anyway, I could go on about his career, but um, age, I was probably only about still 20. We started our own record label, which was Rocket Records. And in those days, it was very um, unusual to have an independent record company. Dick James wasn't very pleased because I'd been there about five years and I left there. But uh, Rocket Records was a great place and we were very keen to uh, to start signing new artists and to get them on the road really in the same way that we've done with Elton John. So that was exciting times. I then actually went on a very big tour with Elton John in America when I was only age 23 now because I was working with an artist called Kiki D and she was supporting Elton. So we went uh, on tour, another three-month tour. We had our own plane called the Starship, which you'll see on the uh, on the website as well. But after that tour, I really thought I, it was time to retire. Really, I'd, I'd been to—I'd met someone actually in in Hawaii, lived in a ice cream van. I thought, you know, I've done everything now in the music business. I'm getting on. I'm 23. It's time to slow down. Time to retire. So I thought I'd retire to Hawaii, where we've been, and um, some great things going on there. But anyway, just before retiring, I thought I'd go and see uh, Gus Dudgeon, who you know I'd worked with for years. Who was Elton John's producer. He also produced the Beach Boys and lots of big artists. And uh, on seeing him, he was telling me that he was going to build a, a recording studio in a village called Cookham in Berkshire. And uh, anything that Gus did, I knew would be of top class. And he'd always been talking about building an amazing studio. So I said, well, I'll go and see the place that you're talking about. And uh, so I drove to this um, old mill, which uh, he was telling me about was going to make a new studio. And I just fell in love with it, really. And uh, when Gus explained what a great studio it was going to be, I thought, well, maybe I'll put off retirement for a little while and, you know, and get back into it. And because and, I, to be honest, when I started uh, working with Elton, I was getting more involved in management and A&R and I'd forgotten how much I loved um, producing and uh, engineering. So uh, I thought, well, maybe that's a good idea. Go back to that. So I, I moved to Cookham, which is where I still live, actually, in Berkshire, which is a beautiful village. And we started building the mill studios. Of, again, if actually, if you go on to um, stuartepps.com, there's pictures of the mill being built and in the process of being built. But it really was, it, was, uh, it wasn't supposed to take uh, as long as it, was, um, as it did in the end. It took two years to build and uh, something like $2 million, $3 million, which was a lot of money in those days. This is 1974 we're talking about. 
And uh, we really built the most up-to-date, most technologically advanced studio in the world at that time. And it was also the most sumptuous because Gus Dudgeon was a very um, flamboyant character as well after producing all the Elton albums. And so it was quite unusual in that respect. That two years, and we started uh, work at the mill in 1976, and we, we were recording and producing a lot of new artists, bands called Voyager and uh, all sorts of... I mean, Elton John came in himself, and we recorded two albums with him. But uh, they were great times at the mill anyway, and uh, I worked for Gus for about five years. Unfortunately, he had to sell it through uh, circumstances, and so the, the studio was put on the market. And we heard that a guy was interested. A lot of people came to look at it, but we heard that this particular guy, there was a lot of mystery surrounding who it was. He was arriving in a helicopter nearby, and um, we weren't allowed to know who it was exactly. And we were trying to guess who it could be. It was someone in the music business, or probably a rock star of some sort. Anyway, the door opens uh, one afternoon, and in walks Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. And uh, very nice, very quiet. We were in the middle of a, of a rock album at the time with a band, I can't remember their name now. But anyway, he was very quiet. He just looked around and didn't say very much. But a couple of weeks later, we heard that he was, he was actually going to buy the studio. And then I was contacted by some of his people to say that they wanted to keep me on, a studio manager, an engineer. And um, so I was, I was pretty excited about that. I mean, I'd been a Led Zeppelin fan, but I wasn't a huge Led Zeppelin fan. But obviously, I was looking forward to now recording Led Zeppelin at the mill, which I was thinking was going to be a great, great idea. So I started working for Jimmy in the early 80s, this is. And um, it was pretty strange right from the beginning because I didn't actually meet him for weeks and weeks. I'd just sort of be talking to his various people. And, uh, and then the, the tragedy happened uh, not long after, really, Jimmy bought the studio that they were about to go on tour in Germany. And um, John Bonham was unfortunately found dead at uh, J- Jimmy's house in Windsor. So, um, so that was a big blow. And um, I mean, we did obviously, obviously figure that possibly they would get another drummer at some point. But anyway, Jimmy's main task at that time was to put together a tribute album for John Bonham. And so that was when I then met Jimmy. He came over to the studio, started bringing tapes over, of unreleased Led Zeppelin stuff. And uh, we started working on the Coda album, which was being thrown in the deep end, really, having not worked with Jimmy or, or Led Zeppelin before. But certainly exciting. I mean, we started working on a track called Bonzo's Montreux, which was just drums, 24 tracks of drums and pretty unique track. And um, it wasn't easy, but it was great working with Jimmy anyway. And we, we got through uh, uh, remixing some of the tracks from In Through the Outdoor from Led Zeppelin. And uh, Robert Plant came over and John Paul Jones came over and I met them. So, um, yeah, it was good times. And we did the, um, that album. And then following on from that, um, Jimmy really uh, was telling people about this, the studio that he bought now, the Mill Studios. So a couple of his friends then booked in. Uh, one of them was Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac. We did his solo album, a lot of his solo album at the Mill. Uh, George Harrison came in. And of course, my, the Beatles were about the biggest and the best, my favorite artists of all time. So meeting George Harrison was absolutely brilliant. And him coming in and doing a bit of work as well was just uh, incredible you know when i thought i'd done everything i was starting to be pleased that i hadn't retired another artist friend of jimmy's was bill wyman who came in we did an album with him called willie and the poor boys which was a, a sort of a blues rock album with some fabulous uh, musicians uh, the drummer from uh, all sorts of people anyway some great musicians came in and actually i worked with bill for about 20 years following that 
So the mill really took on a new era, and I took on a new era in it. I forgot to mention, which actually was pretty important for me, that the head of Atlantic Records sent uh, these guys down to the mill. It was a pretty strange afternoon. There was a knock on the door, these very, very peculiar-looking, extremely long-haired guys, very, very excited, said, oh, hi, uh, Phil Carson's told us to come and see you. You're producing our new album. I said, oh, come in and have a chat. Anyway, this was Twisted Sister. And, uh, yeah, they were pretty outlandish guys, even by standards that I had for pretty outlandish people. And uh, to be honest, I didn't really like their music. They said it was heavy metal, but it sounded like not very good to me. But anyway, they were great guys. And then they played me a couple of new songs. And I thought, well, you know, there could be something in this. Maybe it reminds me of, of The Who. You know, my generation, they had a track that was a bit like that. So anyway, I ended up producing them and we had some big hits. And it was a, they were great guys. They're still great guys. I also produced a band called uh, Vandenberg, who are a heavy rock band from, where were they from? They were from Sweden, I think. I might have that wrong. Can't remember now. But um, no, they weren't Sweden. They were from the Netherlands anyway, somewhere. But uh, we, had, we had a big hit with them. We had a hit, I had a hit producing them called Burning Heart, which was um, top three in America. So it, um, it really was the start of my um, new era of production, I suppose, uh, aged. Uh, I was only about 25 still working with some of these great bands from Atlantic Records and at The Mill, which was my favorite studio. So I did that for about five years. And then uh, for one reason or another, it was getting a bit strange working there uh, for Jimmy at some point. So I decided to go freelance and then um, started another studio called Wheeler End, which again is on my website. And that was a new era for me. Uh, Wheeler End was owned by Alvin Lee from 10 years after he'd actually left this property, but I, I built this great studio there. And I took the desk actually that had been at the mill, uh, where I'd recorded all these great bands and set it up at Wheeler End. And that became, I mean, that was tough really, because it's not easy to uh, start up your own commercial studio. Commercial studios are quite hard to run. But not long after I'd started it up, I got some, we, it, this was about the time of Britpop, which um, maybe people will remember in, in the UK, we're talking about um, late eight. Sorry, we're talking about the 90s now. What am I talking about? And um, we've gone on quite a bit, really, from 1967. Anyway, one day I got a call from um, a guy from a record company that I knew very well, Chris Briggs. He said, I'm sending down an artist uh, you might have heard of. He was in a band called Take That, and he's uh, made a solo album, but he wants to make another album, and that's Robbie Williams. So I started uh, working on his album, I've Been Expecting You, which became a massive big uh, big seller and then you became like this huge superstar solo artist but i also um got a call from um, oasis and i did some work with them i worked with paul weller there and still working with bill wyman and still uh, producing bands so that was wheeler end i was there for quite a few years but then um uh, went from there to um back to cookham actually because uh, my heart's always been really in cookham village so i came back to cookham uh, sold the desk. Unfortunately, I wish I still had that beautiful desk. But um, I set up a studio in my home because now we're talking about uh, a completely new computer age and internet age. So uh, instead of having to work in a recording studio in a huge space, really, with massive, great big desk, it was now possible to work on a computer, which, I mean, it seems um, it seems mad to sort of talk about now. But Really, when that was uh, that was impossible. So editing, I did a lot of editing with a comedy artist called Billy Connolly. You might have heard of, uh, which I used to do. You know, actual 
editing with a razor blade, and now you can edit uh, digitally and electronically. So it was a completely new age and made it possible to have a much smaller space. And, you know, I could probably go on for hours and hours and hours, but to bring you up to date and to bring everyone up to date, I now have a small production suite in my house where I um, do all my mixing and a lot of recording, although I still use um, large studios when it's down to recording bands. Obviously, you still need a big space for that. But, um, you know, it made me realize that you actually don't need to be in a commercial studio that's been going for, for 100 years to make great music and that great music can be made anywhere. If it's great music, it'll, it'll find a way. And uh, so the room that I have now, and, and obviously with the internet now, I'm working with bands uh, which I call remote producing. You know, it really is possible now to, uh, to work with bands and artists and produce bands and artists from around the world without actually not being in the room, which is um, pretty amazing, really, and pretty experience. But, you know, but music is, is for the ears, really, and, and music travels in the air. So, you know, I suppose it was always on the cards that it could happen, but that's, you know, and I still like, of course, there's nothing and or a singer in front of you that's singing in front of you and getting all that atmosphere and then trying to put that atmosphere on a, on a record, but it can be done electronically these days. So, yeah. So that's yeah. what, I, what I'm doing at the moment. Yes. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. The, and I appreciate you so much sharing uh, your story. I have, tons of questions about each of the artists you worked with yeah. but we could go for for hours i think uh, this episode would be 10 hours long if i just talked about that really exciting just one question have you been working on a book uh, because i i was surprised you don't have one yet <laughs> yeah well i actually on my um because the, there's two websites really there's the apps music productions which is the latest website, which is um, mainly to do with the new artists that I'm recording, uh, a lot of the artists that I'm working with and what I'm doing now. But then on stuartepps.com, there's more of the history of my history, of which I've just been speaking. And there's also on there, there's a, a section called Elton, the early years, which I wrote about the first five years when I was working with Elton John at um, Dick James. And um, yeah, I mean, often people say, why don't you... Um, Put this all down. I mean, you know, there, hopefully there's still time, and maybe I will do that. But I don't know really. I looked into it. I mean, it, it probably would take a year or two years to uh, to put it all down, and I'm I'm sort of too busy still creating stuff really. But uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? But I have written about the first five years, those exciting times, because they were amazing times, not just for me and Elton John and uh, for the bands around, but they were an amazing time in musical history really from the sort of late 60s to the mid 70s it's only now that you fully appreciate how amazing the music was and the whole culture and everything of the time because it's it's only because you know history goes on and now you can look back that you realize it was a bit of an amazing period yeah yeah and, and yeah. i'm on your website right now and uh i have checked out uh, these sections on different artists and different um periods of for your career so it's yeah definitely something that i encourage everyone who is listening to us to to check out the link is yeah. in the show notes and uh so you mentioned uh, how your work roughly speaking has changed with the digital era and i understand that these like production and studio work is key to you and what excites you the most you mentioned that you uh, were involved in some things management in uh, and other 
industry things not uh, related to the production of music exactly in the past. Do you have any comments on on how the industry changed uh, from the business standpoint of view? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a few up. There's yeah, there's a lot of upsides and positive sides to the new era and the fact that we're in the 21st century and all the technology that goes with it. So there's a lot of positive sides for musicians and artists. I mean, funnily enough, probably one of the most positive sides is the is the way that live music has actually increased, really. The interest in, the, in live music is probably more now than ever before. You know, there's more artists around, you know, everyone wants to uh, be in a band or be a singer and... Um, There are more outlets for, because uh, the culture is of that type that, you know, there's more relaxation time, there's wine bars and places where live music can happen. So, and even on the big scale, you know, there's, there's still, that's why a lot of the old bands are still playing live because people still want to see live music. So that's not decreased, you know, if anything, live music is more popular. But from, um, obviously, records don't exist and CDs are on the way out and everything is downloading. So actual making money from uh, producing recordings is on the decrease and, and uh, you know, it's not as easy to make money out of producing records and selling them. And it's really to promote artists in a more general fashion, to promote them to playing live and to selling their music that way. So it's in some respects, it hasn't really changed very much. I mean, you still need to be great. You know, there's no good being average. There's so, in fact, that's the problem: is that there's so many more bands and artists now, so there's so much more competition. Really, that you know, you have to be even better than before, possibly. So when there wasn't so many people doing it, so you know, in some respects, that's good. Obviously, this it should mean that the standard of making music is that much higher. But uh, sometimes I worry about that because um, a lot of young artists maybe don't spend enough time improving their skills as far as musicianship you know there's nothing wrong with being the best guitarist in the world but it seems that a lot of young artists want to not just be the best guitarist but the best singer the best songwriter the best producer the best engineer and kind of do it all themselves you know which brings me to um, home recordings which obviously having the capability to record at home and to do it yourself uh, seems like a great idea but i tend to think that still Sometimes making music isn't a solitary thing and having more people involved than just one is possibly the best way to do it. So, you know, I still think bands are a great thing and I still think producers obviously are a great thing and engineers are people doing what they do best, really, and, and homing in on what they think. You know, there's possibly not many people who are passionate about being just producers anymore or engineers or, as like I say, singers or guitarists or keyboard players. You know, they tend to want to do everything. And so I, I sort of try to stress that, you know, I think it's really at some point, you know, in your early teens that musicians and artists think what I'm best at and just to try and get even better at it. But anyway, you were asking me about the business and I sort of strayed from that. It's just not easy, really. I mean, it's still in the UK, at least, to have any chance of a hit record, a single anyway, it needs to be played on the radio. And if it's played on the radio, it needs to conform to uh, certain things. It needs to be a pop record. I mean, probably if we're talking of rock music, still the best way to promote yourselves uh, is live and building up a following, starting in a small way, you know, in clubs and pubs and building up that following, which really hasn't changed for 50 years, which is a bit crazy, really. But that's the, the truth that the biggest bands have um, are able to play live, you know, the biggest 
artists are able to do it live and to be uh, all-round entertainers as well, you know, not just making records. So in some respects, it hasn't really changed. I yeah. mean, and it is possible for individuals to do it themselves. I mean, in fact, it's really down to individuals to do it themselves because record companies are so huge and they've become so massively um, corporate that they only take on projects that are almost already selling and that are almost already successful, which is not how it was when I started. The whole point of a record company was to take embryonic artists and make them into something and to finance making them into something and to use all the professional staff and everything else to help that. So, um, you know, it's not easy. I mean, obviously what you do and uh, uh, what other companies do in putting artists and uh, bands and singers in front of record company and, and professional people, that's the new era as well, really. So uh, it's like uh, electronic A&R or internet A&R. I also work with a company called Music X-Ray that does a similar thing. But, um, you know, that's the new age, really, where artists in the street, young people of all ages, can get in touch directly with people in the music business like myself who have been doing it for years and years and help them with the creation of their recordings and with the business side of it. Yeah, which yeah. So that's a benefit because that couldn't have happened uh, years ago. The only way you could meet with an A&R or a record producer was um, in a record company and uh, by an appointment, and it was pretty difficult. So, you know, everyone's got access to everything really now. It's all out there. It's all on the internet. There's the access is there if you know where to find it, but it still doesn't, it still doesn't make for amazing music unless that music is amazing. So one way or another, the music is the thing and it's still got to be great and it's got to have atmosphere and it's got to be different. And then it's, if it is great music, it's not as difficult to promote it. And that'll prove how good it is if it catches on and, you know, becomes viral if, is the word, isn't it? So some of the things that go viral are not normally, are not often something wonderful. They're usually something bizarre or horrible. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, but the thing is that if we go back in time, say, to when the Beatles broke, you know, they were absolutely something completely unique. And so it went viral in an amazingly brilliant way. And uh, everyone wanted to hear this great new music. Um, you know, unfortunately, I can't remember the last time when that's happened in recent history, where sort of some sort of music has come out and everyone's gone, wow, you've got to hear this, you've got to hear this. And suddenly it becomes worldwide huge. I actually wanted to ask you, these days when you get a record, uh, an email from a new independent band, do you often get as excited as you were when all these now legendary names uh, uh, came to your studio years well, back? it's rare. I mean, it's happened to me uh, one or two times, which isn't very many in the times that I've been doing this. And unfortunately, you know, I tend to sort of not get too excited. I try not to get too excited if I hear something and think, wow, this is because unfortunately sometimes there seems to be a catch and and I can tell you a couple of them is that I heard a band someone play me a band from South Africa and I as soon as I put it on I thought wow this is this is good this is special you know and it was uh, yeah it was very rocky it was very down to earth and it was very rough in a way but it did sound brilliant and in particular the singer just sounded incredibly unique and very powerful and uh, passionate Anyway, after I listened to the whole album, now I was totally excited about it. When I spoke to the manager, they just she just tells me that uh, 
the singer was just killed in a in a car crash. Oh. You know, so I couldn't believe it. I mean, I I said, oh, well, couldn't you have told me that before you sent me the band? So you know, that was the down well terrible downside with that. You know, the guy had an amazing voice, only eighteen years old. So that was a bit unusual to say the least. And then you know, another artist that I started working with, who I thought this is the next Robbie Williams. It turns out he was an actor and wanted to do more acting and wasn't really that bothered about being the next Robbie Williams. And although I sort of told him he had the best voice and could be this, that, and the other. Yeah, so I don't get... And, and also, that the, the one other one was a German band that I uh, mixed, who is on my website somewhere or other, who, um, again, I just thought, wow, this is a brilliant band. Actually, they were quite unusual. They were sort of half R&B and half heavy rock, which I thought was a really good mixture. And uh, but they were German, and you know they're German speaking, but they didn't sound. They had no accent at all. But they were all at college and university, and didn't seem to be that bothered about being a huge uh, hit rock band, you know. So that was a bit of a drag, really. I got so I, I try not to get. I mean, Ed Sheeran actually is probably he's not. I wish he'd have come to me when he was making demos. In recent history, I think. You know, I've listened, I've got the radio on and something comes on and I've just thought, wow, what a voice. Really like that song, really like that production. And it turned out to be Ed Sheeran. So, and certainly live as well. You know, he's, he's quite an all-round amazing artist. So, But there doesn't seem to be quite as many, certainly not as many as in the mid-60s, 70s that I was talking about, where every other day there'd just be like the Rolling Stones, the Who, you know, all these incredible bands coming out every day. Can't think of them all now, but there was just so many, you know. Yeah, and it sounds like despite all the opportunities and possibilities for uh, for development, musicians are uh, not determined enough to just stick to music. And yeah, that's right. But, uh, but, and also because there's so much choice for everyone, there's so much, um, you know, things that seem to be a lot more different, I suppose, culturally. So if guys get together or if girls get together in a band, you know, as soon as a problem comes up, or a few disagreements, then suddenly it's, uh, right, that's the finish of that, let's try something else. You know, you really need to be dedicated to form a band and to be able to put up with what goes on because bands are very, very tough situations, just like with a close family, you know. So you have to put up with a lot and that there is going to be disagreements and there is going to be problems and arguments and rows and everything else. And that's what makes for great music as well. You know, it's not all it's not all uh, smiles and good stuff and everything's wonderful. If anything, it's the complete opposite. It's when, you know, things are really tough, really bad, no money, nothing going on. So we're desperate here. We've got to make great music. We've got to do a good show. Everything's got to be great. And um, maybe things are a bit too easy these days for that to happen. I don't know. I really like that point. It is something that lots of musicians that we hear from don't quite realize and... Um... A lot of artists expect quick results, uh, not seeing that uh, still, even with uh, the digital tools and the internet, it takes a lot of time to build a brand and following. Yeah, but I mean, what I really liked, or, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the insights that you shared so far, but I really like this idea of uh, the importance of having a team and not just trying to be good at everything. And yeah. it's something that I've been talking for quite a lot in the past years that a lot of musicians with uh, the introduction of this DIY concept got it wrong a little bit. So do it yourself doesn't mean literally doing it all on your own. And uh, it's important to build a team and uh, understand how things work, but then delegate. So it's entrepreneurship. Uh, so you need to run 
your music project kind of like a startup or a company sort of which is probably a bit different from how it was in the past but this importance of having a team is really crucial and you from what i see and from what you've mentioned and what is available on your websites of course you offer exactly that right now correct so you offer your services or other internet so uh, just helping with uh, production and i'm curious to learn a bit more on what exactly you've been doing for musicians if you don't mind sharing that what you mean in production or promotion with your uh, company if it includes uh, promotional elements and i know know that you do a bit yeah. of that feel free to mention well, but mainly like the production side yes andrew if you know that because i'm so old If there's anyone that I know in the record business, they tend to be the heads of the record companies, not the office boy by any means or the young A&R guy. You know, it would tend to be the head of Sony or the head of this or the head of Atlantic or this, that, and the other. So if I'm working with an artist and I think, wow, this is something, this is absolutely brilliant and deserves to be out there and deserves to sell in sort of millions, then I'll, I'll get involved in the promotion And I'll, yeah, I'll promote them to whoever I think would like this material. But, you know, it happens so rarely. And there's no point in me trying to promote something unless I think it's absolutely amazing. You yeah, know, so, it, of sense, of course. so, you know, the first stage is to, is to make some great music and to help with that production. That's the first step. And then following that to see where it can go and to see where it deserves to go and, and if I can help with that. Or I might pass it on to some other promotional company or, you know, or outlet or something or other. But the first and foremost thing is the production, really. And, um, you know, it's, you know, I was, I've got lots of examples. I was working with a, a young guy who's in Chicago and he just sent me some pretty rough demos. I mean, they were good though. And, and he was only young. He's only 19 or something, 20. And I put together tracks completely around him with drums and other guitars and really some pretty great rock sounds, I thought, rock production. But, I, you know, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know. People seem to, young guys or girls seem to spend a lot of time maybe having just a good time. I mean, <laughs> I know it sounds stupid. It's nice to have a good time. But, you know, you've got to be, if you want to succeed in anything, let alone become a rock star, you know, you've got to be incredibly passionate and incredibly self-determined and single-minded to get that to happen, you know. And uh, it's rare, unfortunately, and maybe there's someone out there, you know, there's a band listening at the moment and they say, no, that's us. We're there. We're self-determined. We're different. We're great. We're brilliant. We want to make it, you know, so hopefully there are bands and artists out there like that. But I tend to not meet that many. Unfortunately, it's a bit depressing, but unfortunately, that's the case. Well, yeah, well, it's really great to hear this from you. It's important for musicians to hear this really. Actually, I've just thought of something that completely uh, goes against that. And uh, I'm working with a band now, which uh, the singer is nine. Oh. Yeah, I think he might be 10. And uh, it's two brothers, actually. The singer's 10, and his brother is about 11. The brother plays uh, saxophone. And uh, I'm about to record them in a couple of weeks. Now, the thing is that, yeah, the music and the songs, you know, are pretty, they're very, you know, they are kids. And so the, the songs are a little bit naive. They are very naive. But what's not naive, actually, is their musicianship, because the guitarist is absolutely brilliant. I mean, his rhythm playing, you know, they do exist. You see them on some of these YouTube things, you know, youngsters of 10 years old playing amazing rock guitar, 
you know, like maybe in my era, I used to see little kids playing incredible classical violin or classical piano, you know, sort of um, now there are these youngsters who play amazing, you know, and, and these kids are brilliant. They, you know, they, they want to be, but the thing is they want to be rock. They want to be rock bands. They don't want to be some sort of uh, pop or electronic band, which is, which is, it almost brings me to tears because, the, you know, the fact that, uh, that they love the music that I grew up loving, what's the chances of that? I mean, I'm, I'm more in tune with their grandfather's, grandparents' music, you know. So how um, 10-year-olds end up liking the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and the Who, I, it's, that's really quite crazy, really. And, you know, the fact that a little boy would pick up, you know, a Steinberger headless electric guitar and start playing it like Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones is pretty mad. But I, awesome. I got, I've got to love that because, you know, I walked into a shop a little while ago and there was a 15-year-old, 14-year-old picking up an acoustic guitar and playing uh, Stairway to Heaven. Well, that was, for, that's, that was written 40 years ago. You know, so I've got to say that's a miracle, really, because um, certainly when I was 14 years old, I wasn't picking up the guitar playing a piece of music that was 40 years previous to that, you know, which would have been, I don't know what that would have been, um, something a bit odd, really. So on the one hand, I sort of might get a bit wondering why music has really not progressed so completely, totally, that I can't relate to what youngsters are making at all. Um, on the other hand, obviously, it's a great situation that it hasn't. It doesn't seem to have progressed. Well, I won't say progressed, but it doesn't seem to have changed out of all recognition, which is really what was going to happen, you see, because, uh, you know, in the 1980s, when, when music became more electronic and synthesizers were invented, and that's more like the 70s, late 70s, uh, what it was looking like was that music was going to change out of all recognition. You wouldn't be able to recognize the music of the 2000s. You certainly wouldn't be able to recognize the music of the 21st century if you put it up against music of the 60s, you know, 1960s, 20th century. It was going to have to, it would be space music, you know. So, um, you know, and guitars wouldn't exist and keyboards wouldn't, you know, pianos wouldn't exist. Acoustic instruments wouldn't exist, really. And that's what we were expecting at that time. But uh, somehow or other, rock music and pop music seems to have... Um, has to relate to human beings. So people still want to bang bits of wood, drums and, uh, and pieces of wood with strings on them and play guitars, you know. So it's, it's great in a, in a way for me that when I look on, on bands' websites, you know, still their favourite band, if they're asked what's your favourite band, they tend to answer Led Zeppelin, which That's is great. crazy, really. They'd split up 40 years ago. But from my point of view and people my age that are in the music business, obviously we, we think that's great because that's the music that we love. So, you know, Jimi Hendrix, still the best guitarist on the planet. Hasn't been, no one has got better than it. I mean, I, su I suppose a lot of it is because it, it was invented then, really. That, that style was invented at that time. And yeah, it's even in electronic music, you hear a lot of, uh, there's a lot of influence of uh, music of that era. So absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose what you know you, you could say is that now that music is a bit more like a big palette, you know, like a painter's palette. And when people go to make music, they take parts of all the different eras from the 60s to now and say, well, we'll have a bit of that. We'll have a bit of Led Zeppelin drums. We'll have a bit of um, slash guitar. You know, we'll have a bit of Michael Jackson here and a bit of the, you know, and sort of make up their music from those periods, you know. Whereas in the 60s, it was like, completely starting again 
I mean, Jimi Hendrix picked up a guitar, he turned it upside down, and pretty much that's how he played it. He invented a different style of music completely, you know. I mean, to a certain extent, so did Led Zeppelin, a completely different sound, pretty much, and um, a different style. And, and sounds and styles don't get invented so much these days, I would say. They tend to be a style that you've already heard or definitely that I've already heard. But I'm always looking forward to being proved wrong. You know, when, I, yeah, when someone yeah. said, what, what about when people send you tapes and emails? And, you know, I'm always I just have an open mind. I say, you know, right, what is this? And I'm still looking forward to just hearing something and going, wow, that is, that's different and that's amazing. And hopefully I can get involved with it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of that, still, are you looking for particular types of acts and bands to connect with you in terms of genres? No, not particular, because I, you can't really. I mean, I yeah, there are genres that I don't like, and I don't mind saying that I don't like them. I, I'm not keen on rap. Saying that, you know, maybe I'll hear tomorrow or later today a rap artist that I just think is somehow amazing. It's a bit unlikely. But um, and also heavy metal. I'm not really. I don't like that. I don't like those vocals. But you know. But maybe there'll be something that I'll hear that I like. But most other genres I like. I tend to, you know. I, I hope that I just have an open mind to whatever it is. But also, obviously, it's got to be something that I can relate to. Otherwise, it, you know, I won't be able to work on it if I can't hear something and think, right? Well, I can really add to that. You know, I can get a better drum sound. I can get those songs sounding better or the track sounding better. I can really add to that. You know, so I'm not really looking. I'm just looking for something amazing, really. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, in its embryonic state, because that's what I. I tend to think after a lot of years is that I do have a, um, I must have a bit of a talent for that because like I told you when I heard Elton John, I mean, all right, so that's a genre that maybe not everyone likes. But when I first heard Elton John when I was 15, it did something to me, to my head, that I just thought this is amazing. And let's face it, 250, I think 300 million people now think the same because that's how many records he sold, you know. So So, and also when I first heard Queen, I was one of the first people on the planet to hear Queen. I thought the same as I did with Elton. Well, not quite the same. I didn't think they were, you know, I thought, wow, this is good. I like that guitar. I really like the harmonies and everything. I wasn't completely blown away, but I did think this is a great band. And again, you know, maybe 300 million people have decided that that's right. So I tend to think that I must have a bit of a, a good two ears for listening to something and imagining it to be uh, popular. With other, with everyone else, you know, with other people. That's great for musicians uh, uh, to hear from you and to hear your opinion, even if it's saying that they are not quite ready yet, and uh, if they need to work on something. Because these days, I find that constructive criticism that musicians can accept is very important, and yeah. uh, it cannot be coming from anyone. It just, it may not be really effective, uh, and musician may not listen to you unless. You actually have that background, like like yourself, and you people trust your opinion for a reason. So it's also something really great about working with you, I imagine. Yes, absolutely. So maybe to soon wrap it up, but to give a better idea to our listeners about the types of services that you provide. So can you give maybe some examples of what kind of uh, situation an artist or a band may be in to, uh, to consider reaching out to you? So what um, kind of production services your 
company offer yeah. right now? Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, it can be anything, really. I mean, it can be absolutely anything from taking um, a recording that a band or an artist has already done in their home studios and improving it production-wise. And, and they can be in, you know, they could be in Russia or anywhere or Canada or America. They can send me the track and uh, I can add to the production. I can add instruments to it or I could just remix it. So there's that um, scenario, which I'm doing a lot of, to obviously... You know, I've just been working with a Japanese all-girl band who flew from Japan to Stoke-on-Trent in England, and I was working with them. So it can be anything, really. I mean, if it's music and if it needs production help and engineering and my skills, then I can do anything, really. Anything's possible. Awesome. Uh, there's, there's no, um, you know, music has, it's just the technology now is there's absolutely no barriers. There's no barriers the only barrier is the one of the musicians' capabilities and uh, talents. Really, that's the only that's the only thing that can hold it back. But uh, if you've got a talented band and talented musicians, then everything else is possible. And I can do anything with them. Um, you know, on my website again, it's not on my Epps Music, but on the StuartEpps.com. There's a couple of examples. There's a thing there called Before and After. I mean, it's not very um, it's not a very glamorous website, but there's the Before and After, which will which features, um, in fact, it features one guy that I was talking about who sent me a guitar and voice, and you can hear a little bit of what he sent me, and then you can hear a little bit of what it became. There's a woman there from San Francisco who sent me a very out-of-tune, oh, I shouldn't say that, she might be listening, but anyway, it was a bit out-of-tune, vocal and guitar, and then I made it into this, um, you know, production, full production, so you can hear what's possible, you think it's possible, really. As I understand, anyone can just uh, use the contact form, email you, uh, send yeah, uh, send you what they've got, and uh, you will also provide uh, them with uh, quotes. Uh, I understand. Yeah. yeah, of course, absolutely. Unfortunately, that there is that that I'm I'm not as rich as some of the artists that I've worked with, so I still have to do this for a living. You know, and that's um, that's actually it's another point that I haven't really said is that making music is great fun and. Uh, Everyone wants to do it, and that's great. But when you want to do it as a business and as, a, as your career, then it really does take on a different um, complexion. It takes on a different face. You know, it's a different thing, just like in anything, really. I mean, it's all, everyone, it'd be, it's nice to do music for a hobby, but if you want to make it into a paying situation, then it's slightly different. You know, I, I always say, you know, if someone says, well, what do you think of, the, of what I've recorded? I say, well, Do you think any of your friends would pay for that? You know, because you can play something to friends. They say, yeah, it's great. And I really like that. But I mean, how about if you said, well, will you give me $50 for it? You know, they might say, mm, well, I don't like it that much. So um, it's just like any other product, really, unfortunately, when it comes to it. But you, in the end, that you want to sell it. So, yeah, I mean, and, and I'm in the music business, not in a... So, yeah, of course, there's a, there's a price that goes with everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So I encourage everyone to check out your website. Once again, yeah. the links are in the show notes. And it's really great that it's possible to connect with you and hear your thoughts and, and uh, see if, uh, if if you, the listener, can actually work with Stuart. So, yeah. And thank you for the insights. Do you have any any other um, closing thoughts for our listeners? No, I think I've talked a lot. You've shared a lot of great insights, and I mean, the story is just amazing. I hope it's not boring, and thanks for giving me the opportunity, Andrew, so I hope that everyone has a good listen on it. 
thank you a lot for your time and uh, yeah so definitely looking forward to hearing that is who you are, you are yet to work with marvelous thank you very much You have been listening to the We Spin Recipes podcast. Learn how we can help you improve your music career at wespin12.com. We Spin 12.